You're listening to Discover Hope with Pastor Tom Leake of Hope Bible Church in Columbia, Maryland. What you say inside of your own mind and what you repeat to yourself, that's how you're going to be. If you want to love Christ and you want to live for Christ, you've got to be saying His Word to yourself. You've got to open your mind during times of preaching. You've got to read with understanding. You've got to memorize and reflect. You've got to have your devotions. You've got to feed on the Word of God. It's got to be going on in your mind. When the worldly thoughts come, when the worldly priorities come, the anger, the anxiety, the lust, you have to replace it all with God's Word. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. In today's message, Pastor Tom is going to remind you that it's God's Word that imparts life, it's God's Word that draws you along the path of righteousness, and it's God's Word that will convict others and draw them to repentance. Let's dive into God's Word together today. Now, here's Pastor Tom in the book of Genesis chapter 4 as he continues his message, Logic on Fire, the church's first sermon. In Genesis 4, that's pretty early, right? Genesis chapter 4, it says Abel was declaring the word of God to Cain, and then he glorified God by his martyrdom when Cain killed him. Enoch, just seven generations from Adam, according to Jude, verse 14, preached the coming of the Lord. Imagine that way back in church history, preaching the coming of the Lord in righteous and holy judgment. Second Peter 2, 5 says that Noah was a preacher of righteousness in the days before the flood. And we know exactly what happened to everybody who did not listen to his preaching. Abraham was told to command his family to keep the way of the Lord in Genesis eighteen nineteen. Moses would read and teach and explain the law of God. Elijah boldly declared the word of God to King Ahab and to other people and uh, all the obstinate Jews there on Mount Carmel. Ezra dedicated himself to reading and to exposition and application of the Old Testament scriptures to the post-exilic believers. It actually says about Ezra in Nehemiah 8.8, they read from the book, from the law of God, explaining to give the sense so that they understood the reading. That is what we call expository preaching. Isaiah was a preacher. Jeremiah was a preacher. Jonah was a preacher. And my, what a revival came with Jonah. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness doing what? You say he was eating locusts and honey. That's true. But it says he was preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. I don't know why he's not called John the preacher. Why does he have to be called John the Baptist? He baptized, but the first thing he did was preach. Jesus in Mark 1.38 describes his own public ministry primarily not as a healer, but as a ministry of preaching and teaching both to the crowds and to his own disciples. Jesus then took his disciples and he sent them out in Matthew 10.7, that uh, discourse on discipleship we call it. And he said, as you go, and the first thing he told him to do, guess what it is? Preach. As you go, Preach. Caruso, announce, proclaim loudly, get the word out, spread it like seed everywhere, preach. First thing it says about the early church in Acts 2.42, we're getting to that. It says that all the people devoted themselves to the apostles' didache, teaching, doctrinal instruction. The primary activity that Paul charged Timothy to do as a pastor was to preach the word in season and out of season. When they want to hear it, preach it. When they don't want to hear it, preach it louder. Second Timothy 4.2, I added the louder part. But that's kind of what it means. 
Throughout church history, God has always raised up preachers after the apostles. There was Polycarp and Papias, Irenaeus. Then came John Goldenmouth, John Chrysostom, Calvin and Luther and Knox at the times of the Reformation, Whitfield and Wesley, then Spurgeon in, in London, our country, Lloyd-Jones, many others as well. God's plan has always been to ignite revival and reach people and then build the church up through clear preaching and teaching of his word. Today, however, it appears the modern church has lost sight of that. It seems to me, just from looking and listening and hearing what I do, that churches and radio stations and parachurch ministries are dedicated to just about everything else but biblical preaching. That's how it feels to me. That's how it seems to me. I mean, God told the church, preach my word. What's so hard about that? And they'll give a little bit of the word. Small group discussions are helpful. They help us think through how to apply. It's wonderful to listen to how God is working in other people's lives. Music certainly ministers to our souls. You wake up in the morning singing words more than you would uh, reciting words of a sermon. They engraves it and kind of writes it on our hearts. But God's word is best accentuated in all of its logic, in all of its truth, by maximum exposure to biblical proclamation and instruction. Preaching is, as D. Martin Lloyd-Jones called it, logic on fire. It is to be neither stale and lecturing, nor is it to be sentimental and effusive. Preaching is the Spirit taking divine logic and burning it into our souls till it sets us ablaze with love for Christ. Do you love Christ? Do you want to live for Christ? Or you've been listening to too many other things. We say this again and again. What you listen to is what you're going to become. What you say inside of your own mind and what you repeat to yourself, that's how you're going to be. If you want to love Christ and you want to live for Christ, you've got to be saying his word to yourself. You've got to open your mind during times of preaching. You've got to read with understanding. You've got to memorize and reflect. You've got to have your devotions. You've got to feed on the word of God. It's got to be going on in your mind. When the worldly thoughts come, when the worldly priorities come, the anger, the anxiety, the lust, you have to replace it all with God's word. It, there is no other shortcut to sanctification. This is how it is. Even the Son of God decided to center, center his entire ministry, not on healing, not on helping the poor, not on music, not on drama, nor even on small group discussion, not even on a writing ministry. Interestingly, he didn't write, except when he did that little thing in the ground that one time, remember? But he centered his ministry on bold, incessant, village-to-village -village proclamation of God's message about the kingdom. In three and a half years, he didn't want to waste his time, and the main thing he did was preach. He never stopped preaching. He was even preaching from the cross. Direct preaching and teaching, above all other forms of communication, encompasses the fullness of God's message to man. It is uniquely qualified for the Holy Spirit to take it and work in varying human hearts and talk to their minds and their hearts and deal with whatever it is they're, they're needing to deal with. Preaching has the ability to drive truth home into the heart. Sometimes when you're reading it by yourself, you won't press yourself, but then the preacher can be obnoxious, can't he? 
You can like not leave the subject you want on the leave. You're sitting there and saying, enough of that, enough of that, enough of that. Move on to the next thing, move on to the next thing. And it just won't move. Just clamps down like a bulldog. And it's because God wants you to hear it. And you don't want to be impolite and leave. So you sit there and you endure it. Preaching compels the heart to respond. Preaching uncovers sin and turns our faces red. Preaching comforts the afflicted and afflicts the comfortable. Preaching inspires obedience. Timothy was a preacher. And he was told, be constantly nourished on the words of the faith yourself. Prescribe and teach sound doctrine to the people, 1 Timothy 4. He was instructed this way. Paul said, take pains with these things. Be absorbed in them. Can't be a good preacher if you're not absorbed in the word of God. Titus was told also in Titus 2.15, these things, in other words, the things that I wrote to you, these things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you because people are going to want to disregard it. God's intent for the communication of his word is very clear. Yet there is a danger in this. There is a danger in being around biblical preaching. Biblical preaching does not always ignite revival. It does not work automatically. Some there are in church who appear to be goodly Christians. They're involved, they're active, they may even instruct others. But over time, it becomes clear. They're not applying God's word to their own hearts. They're not correcting their own sins, their own attitudes that need to change. They become skillful in pointing people to their own sins but not skillful in dealing with their own cherished sin and pride. Church becomes a facade or a game, and they become skilled at playing it. They become skilled at deflecting the attention away from them back to you because they don't want to deal with themselves. Is that you? Are you skilled at that when people come up to talk to you about something and you have a way of just saying a word or two and just getting it off of you and on to someone else? You're in a dangerous position because you're not receiving the word of God. You're not listening and benefiting from preaching. Listen, preaching is supposed to expose sin. If all it does is make everyone feel good, then God is not at work. The church may fill up, but God is not at work. That's not a revival of the Spirit. Preaching is supposed to humble us. God can't work with proud people. He he needs humble people. What are humble people? They're people that are willing to be corrected. You can't get... Revival until sin is dealt with. What is the Holy Spirit called? Holy. He will not work until the sin is dealt with so there can be holiness in the heart and then the Holy Spirit moves. He's not the sinful spirit. He's not the proud spirit. He's not the worldly spirit. He's the Holy Spirit. This is what Peter's preaching accomplished. It starts with truth that exposes sin and it ends up First with people that are convicted, what should we do? And then it moves on to people being aglow with the Holy Spirit of God. As you look into verse 42 and following, they're very, very happy that they repented of their sin. They're very happy they gave up on their old life and their resistance to Jesus being their master. They yielded, they surrendered, and now they're all happy. It's amazing. They're worshiping and giving, and they're not materialistic. And it's exciting to see the work of the Spirit of God in people. Now, as we look at this sermon, I want you to see how Peter starts it. It is based on the crowd and their reaction to the tongue speaking. Some in verse 12 were just amazed at these signs. There are others in verse 13, as we read, that are mocking, saying they're just full of sweet wine. 
They're intoxicated early in the day. They're getting it on there. They're partying it up. You know, all of this tongue speaking was the result of drunkenness. So Peter wisely introduces his sermon, not by ignoring that, but by using the sign that God gave him. He launches his sermon and then he begins to deal with this objection here that they are drunk. He immediately wanted to eliminate any wrong interpretations about the sign of the Holy Spirit. He didn't want to start a sermon with people not believing him. He, he wanted to make sure that God's glory was not robbed, so he dealt with that. Look at verses 14 and 15 again. It says, but Peter taking his stand with the eleven. Remember, he's one among twelve, but he's the spokesman for them. He's the leader among the leaders, not over the leaders. He takes his stand with the eleven. They are wholeheartedly amening what he's saying, I'm sure. He raised his voice and he declared to them, men of Judea. Judea is the area surrounding Jerusalem. Men of Judea and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. For these men are not drunk as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day. We can stop there. Peter's saying something like, I know that you're hearing the sound of these men and these women talking in different languages. They appear jovial. They're exuberant. Some of you may think they're drunk. They are not drunk. In fact, if you think about it, it's only nine in the morning. It's hardly the time that people would be drinking. Pentecost, you know, was a feast day. And the Jews who were engaged in the services there in Jerusalem would have abstained from eating and drinking until at least 10 a.m. Or 10 a.m., more likely around noon. So Peter's opening words really are strategic. If they had missed the correct interpretation of the gift of languages, then that slanderous laughing and accusation that was given that they were drunk would have detracted from what the Holy Spirit was going to do in convicting them. So he had to deal with the slander first, and he takes it. Now, please note that slander is a regular tool of the devil. He loves using it to hurt good works for God. The devil's name even means what? Do you know? Slander. That's what devil means. And don't doubt that Satan would have his presence in that crowd. If God's getting something going, Satan wants to be there to pour the cold waters on it, right? Tearing down the reputation of other people in unfair judgments, mocking them, insinuating things, attacking their motives, attacking their character. That works as a wrecking ball in God's church. And it is meant to quench the work of of God's spirit. Wherever the Spirit of God is wanting to get going, wherever He is moving people, there Satan will try to be to put it out and nip it in the bud. I'm sure that he relished this opportunity to discredit the church leaders and the church at its very inception. But Peter is very wise here. He nixes this right in the bud. You know, right as he's starting, he says, Look, Jews, it's not what you think. Look to your scriptures. Get your mind off of that and look at your Old Testament scriptures, the law, the Torah, and see that it's said that when the Spirit comes, this is the kind of thing that you would behold. And he guides them right to the Bible. Isn't that wonderful? This is the work of God, Israelites. It does not deserve your ridicule. It deserves your utmost attention. So now he tells them what this sign of tongues really does mean in verses 16 through 21. Verse 16, he says, But this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. Where's Joel? It's one of the 12 minor prophets, right? He's in the Old Testament. He's quoting from that. And he's quoting from Joel 2 and verses 28 and following. And he's quoting Joel Joel to point out that as Jews who had the law, had their scriptures... They should have recognized what this was. They shouldn't have been mocking it. They should have known. They had the scriptures. 
The Jews in Jerusalem already had failed to understand what God was doing through Jesus. I mean, goodness gracious, a man from Nazareth came and he, he healed thousands of people and he preached God's word and lived so wonderfully before him. He cast out demons and they couldn't figure out who he was. It's like that blind man in John 9. Do you remember his, his words? He was blind from birth and, and the Pharisees were trying to figure out where Jesus was and the blind man without any education, he says, well, now here's an amazing thing that you don't know where this man, Jesus, is from and yet he opened my eyes. You haven't figured that out. I have. Since the beginning of time, it's never been heard that anyone has opened the eyes of a man born blind. He said, if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And of course, they ridiculed him and said, you're not a teacher and you would instruct us. Notice the pride. Well, they didn't know anything about Jesus. Now they're missing what the coming of the Holy Spirit is. And he has to figure that out. He has to point that out to them as well. And this was predicted by the prophets. And so, not just the preeminence of preaching, but the primacy of prophecy. I want you to see this too. The primacy of prophecy, how important this is. Please notice that Peter is basing his preaching that day on prophecy. He is basing his preaching, his conclusions about Jesus and, and, and what happened with the resurrection and all the rest of that, his exaltation to have, he's basing it all on prophecy. His preaching is not his own ideas. His preaching is an explanation of God's prophecy, of God's inspired word. Preaching is preeminent as the vehicle of divine truth, but all true preaching must be based on the prophetic word of God. Prophecy. What is it? Prophecy itself is the infallible proclamation of the word of God from God's mouth into the prophet's mouth to the ears of his people. Prophecy occurs when the, the Spirit of God moved upon the divinely chosen person and had that person declare his exact message. It was infallible. Prophecy would start with, would often start with something like this, thus saith the Lord. Or it might say, then the word of the Lord came to me at such and such a time and I said. The preaching was based on the prophesying. The first, the prophecy came, the dream or the vision, and he had the truth, and then he preached, you see, and it became, it became spoken, the spoken word of God. One of the best descriptions of what prophecy is or what it does or what it's not is 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. It explains it so well. Peter writes, he says, Know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. You hear that all the time, don't you? You hear people say, that's just your interpretation. And, and Peter says, oh no, oh no. No prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. People all the time say, well, the Bible's just a human book. No, it's not. No prophecy of Scripture was ever made by an act of human will. Well, then what happened? What happened? What is prophecy? And then he says this, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. It was the Holy Spirit moving them to speak. They couldn't help but do it. Prophecy by its nature as speech from God does not and cannot make mistakes. There's some people today saying there's this thing called fallible prophecy. Yes, that's called false prophecy. When preachers preach, they can make mistakes. When a man was gripped by the Holy Spirit and he prophesied, that was infallible. 
And prophecy proves it is infallible through prediction. That's right. All the prophets of God would predict the future. And they would, they would stake their claim as a true prophet of God. You wait and see if what I tell you doesn't come to true, then I'm not of God. In fact, that very exchange happens to Micaiah, the prophet, in 1 Kings 22. Remember, Ahab wants to go into battle, and, and um, Jehoshaphat is with him, and Jehoshaphat listens to all the prophets, and he, he doesn't trust these prophets. He thinks they're false prophets, and he asks Ahab, don't you have any other prophet, a true prophet of the Lord? And Ahab says, he's the pouting king, you, you may remember. He says, well, there is this one prophet, but he never prophesies anything good about me. So I keep the guy locked up. It's like, all right, go get him. This other king wants to listen, brings him out. And then Micaiah sizes up the whole situation. And he says, oh, go in peace. Go into battle and everything will be fine with you. And then Ahab tries to act like he's really being righteous and godly. He says, see, I told you he's not going to speak right. And Micaiah then prophesies. And he says, I saw the, I saw the battle and basically Ahab's death and the scattering of Israel. And Ahab is upset, and one of the men comes up and slaps Micaiah on the face for being so dis- disrespectful to the king. And Micaiah tells the king, if you indeed return safely from the battle, then the Lord has not spoken by me. And you remember what Ahab did. He must have half believed it because he said, I'm going to dress up like I'm not the king, and the Jehoshaphat will act like he's Ahab. And then nothing happened to, to Jehoshaphat. He's safe, but some stray arrow, stray arrow, went and hit a chink in his armor and killed Ahab. Dogs licked up his blood as they did Jezebel's. God's predictions always come true. Or it's not true prophecy. Notice, by the way, down in the same sermon, down in verses 30 and 31, it says something very interesting. I wonder if you paused when you read that. It said David was a prophet. Did you pick up on that? I thought David was a king. He was. I thought he was a shepherd. Yeah, that's right. But he was also a prophet. He wrote many of the Psalms, and that's prophecy, you see. And it says, because he was a prophet, notice how it's worded, because he was a prophet, he looked ahead and spoke and predicted about the Messiah's resurrection. The implication is, if you're a prophet, you predict. If you don't predict, you're not a prophet. Because you're a prophet, you predict. It's not just preaching. Prophecy is more than preaching. I'm not a prophet. Okay? In case you were wondering, by the way, where, where is this guy going with this? Does he think he's a prophet? No, I'm not a prophet. I'm not a bishop. I'm not an apostle. I'm certainly not the Pope in Rome. I'm a voice. Hopefully a good voice, but I'm a voice. And I preach from God's word. But this is the book that contains the prophecies. Do you see? All of the writing prophets of the Old Testament and all of the writing prophets of the New Testament, who are also called apostles, because apostles are prophets. Not all prophets were apostles, but all apostles were prophets. You didn't get that, did you? Many prophets there were, but they were not apostles. But Paul, Peter, all of them were prophets as well. And they spoke and they preached God's word. All of them had predictions. Every last one of the prophets had predictions. Moses predicted the future. Samuel predicted the future. You go through it. Elijah said it's not going to rain. They go through it. They predict again and again. In the New Testament, you run into Agabus, and Agabus says to Paul, this is what's going to happen to you when you go down to Jerusalem. And he predicts the future. John predicted the future. They predict the future, and it comes true. The Bible is a prophetic book. The Bible contains the prophecies of past generations, some that have been fulfilled, some that were fulfilled in the time of Christ, some are not yet fulfilled. And all of the teachings go along really with the prophecies and with the law and with the gospels. 
So when we say prophecy is primary, what we mean is that all good preaching, all preaching that ignites the work of God's Spirit must be based on biblical truth. It must explain the writings of the prophets. And that is why you see Peter quoting Joel. And that is why you see Peter quoting David. He is basing his powerful preaching on that day on the primacy of prophecy. There is no sermon from Peter without there first being Scripture. Peter connects the prophecy of Joel to the Spirit's work on the day of Pentecost. Today, we saw a lineup of people through Scripture who preached boldly and without worrying about being liked. This is the key to revival, because without confronting sin, there can be no revival. Preaching is meant to expose sin and bear the fruit of humility in our lives. True preaching is based on the Word of God, not our own ideas. Thanks for joining us today as Pastor Tom explored the relationship between preaching and revival. Discover Hope is a listener-supported ministry, and we'd like to offer you the opportunity to be a part of sharing the gospel message. Would you join us in praying for our listeners? Pray that the love and grace of Jesus will be evident in each new broadcast and that many would come to know the hope of salvation. Thanks for praying. If you feel led to contribute financially to this ministry as well, you can do so by visiting hopebible.org and clicking the giving tab at the top of the page. We appreciate every amount given and use it to continue producing the messages of Pastor Tom Leake that you hear on Discover Hope. Next time, we'll get to come along for the ride as Pastor Tom takes us through when Peter said, This is that. Peter's sermon at Pentecost begins with an explanation of a prophecy found in Joel 2 about the outpouring of the Spirit. True biblical preaching occurs when the preaching is based on spiritual truth and explains the writing of the prophets. So next time, we will see all the ways Joel 2 was fulfilled and what's still coming. To listen again to today's message in the book of Acts, visit HopeBibleChurch.org and look under the Sermons tab. Pastor Tom will return soon with another in-depth study of God's Word. So join us again right here on Discover Hope.